guys, and welcome to the GenoCast series. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about proteins. And so let's dive right into it. First of all, what are polypeptides? Well, they are a long chain of amino acids that were linked by condensation reactions. So that means that when they joined together, they actually released lots of water. But, well, you know, an amino acid is a monomer of a protein and you should know very well the way this is constructed because it is very likely that they ask you this in the exam. So, on your left side, you're going to write an amine group. So, in case you don't know what it is, it's a nitrogen with two hydrogens. Remember, left amine. And then in the middle, you're going to have the central carbon with one hydrogen atom and the R group. So let's recap, nitrogen, carbon, and then next to this carbon, you're going to have another carbon, which is going to be a carboxyl group. So carboxyl is carbon plus two oxygens, and one of these oxygens is going to have a hydrogen atom, and the other oxygen is going to have a double bond with the carbon. So just so that you don't get more confused, I suggest you to look for an image and really learn it by heart, because they are going to ask you about this. And whenever you join two amino acids, um, you have to form a dipeptide bond. A dipeptide bond. So what you're going to do is that you're going to have the last carbon, right? So you're going to have you're going to choose the carbon that is most right to you, and you're going to take the oxygen that has the OH group. So the oxygen that has a hydrogen, that's the one you're going to lose. And so that OH group is going to go so that the carbon can join nitrogen. And so that is going to form what we know as a dipeptide bond. Again, if you are feeling a little bit confused, I suggest you look at an image of this once more because you really have to know it. So there are 20 different types of amino acids and this is depending on which chemical group is the R group of the main carbon of the amino acid. And when you actually start joining this, you're going to form a polypeptide change. But let's talk about the amino acids first. So some of them are going to be, some of them are going to have nitrogen, others can have sulfur, and others are going to have oxygen. It really depends a lot. But imagine, a chain can be really, really, really long. And so you can have 20 to the n different types of polypeptides so that's like a super huge number so it, it really we don't know all the proteins that exist because it would be practically impossible to know it but we do know that they can have different characteristics such as hydrophobicity hydrophilicity and well you know it all depends on how their atoms interact but let's now discuss how the genes and polypeptides get formed well, whenever the body senses that it needs to create a different protein or a certain, you know, like a molecule, it's going to get a signal from other cells. And so an enzyme is probably going to enter the nucleus and it's going to get to the uncoiled part of the chromatin, you know. And so from that, it's going to get a messenger RNA and this messenger RNA is going to get out of the nucleus. And so it's going to get to a ribosome with a transfer RNA and so a translate RNA and so this is how you're going to form your new protein. If this explanation was too short we're going to dip in this in another episode but for now you have to know this. And so this is basically how your body forms 
every protein. So it's a messenger translation thing that happens inside of the cell. Now, let's talk about the polypeptides as well as their conformation. So as we already mentioned, there are 20 different amino acids that can have different R groups. And whenever they join together, they are and they form this, you know, huge chain of amino acids, they're going to have a primary structure. So the way I like to think about this is like, you look at a necklace, right? Like a pearl necklace, and you're going to have this very long chain. This, that's the primary structure, the necklace. But then, obviously, this um, primary structure is going to have different R groups that are going to interact differently. So they are going to form two types of, let's say, foldings. One of them will look like a goldy gold goldilocks hair which is going to be like super curly and that is going to be called an alpha helix and the other one is going to look more like a like a wavy hair <laughs> made out of multiple sheets and it's going to it's going to be called a beta pleated sheet and so these are the two different ways that proteins can fold with each other which is going to be called a secondary structure but now if you want to look at the tertiary structure you're going to have lots of different foldings. So you can have a protein that has many Goldilocks as well as uh, the sheets. And so this is going to form different shapes of protein, which are going to be the tertiary structure. And finally, the quaternary structure is whenever you join many of these tertiary structures. So let's say that you have like three or four um, communities of Goldilocks and beta sheets, and then you're going to join all of them, like four of them, and you're going to form a quaternary structure. So an example of a quaternary structure is a hemoglobin molecule, for example, because you're going to have like different foldings. Um, each of them is going to be sort of independent, but in the end, they're going to join and they're going to form this big protein. So other types of proteins are the ones that only have a tertiary structure, so they're a lot more simple. But, you know, if the protein is going to get one or two tertiary structures or even more, it actually depends on whatever functions the protein has. So now, because, uh, you know, there are so many proteins, we have something called proteome. So a proteome comes from the words prote and genome, which is like a map or of proteins. So every individual ha is going to have a different proteome and it is actually going to change, obviously, uh, depending on the species, but more on, well, and a little bit less on the individual, but it will still be different on each person, right? And so proteomes are actually pretty useful as a medical research tool because they can tackle cancer with this and they are able to trace different, um, you know, characteristics of individuals. So in order to know the proteome, you actually need to make something called gel electrophoresis. So this method can also is also very used in genetics whenever you want to see if a DNA sample matches another one. And in this case, you use it to know, well, I already mentioned the profile of a person's proteome, right? So what you're going to do is to separate the different proteins and you are going to see how far each gets depending on its size. So the smaller proteins are probably going to travel farther because of their charge, you know, it's less, let's say, intense. And the larger ones are going to stay, uh, they're not going to travel as far because of their electric charge. So the same principle applies to genetics, actually, and it is a very helpful tool. 
But now let's discuss some of the functions of proteins. For example, we're going to have globular and fibrous proteins. So globular, as their name says, they're going to be like spherical. So they're going to have really complex roles in metabolism. And the reason why they are globular is because there are groups, the ones that don't like water, the hydrophobic ones, are going to be folded to the inside. And so um, actually the protein is going to be soluble in water and it's going to have like this hydrophilicity property on the outside. But an example of this is hemoglobin. And yeah, you know, as I mentioned, it has two alpha and two beta chains. Now, about fibrous proteins, they are more like fibers because they look like, like threads that are really long. And they are normally going to have hydrophobic, hydrophobic groups on the outside. So that means they are not in, soluble in water. And normally they're going to serve as tendons and skin, which is collagen and keratin. Collagen and keratin are the two examples of proteins. But now let's classify some of them. You're going to have Rubisco, which is involved in CO2 fixation, and it is going to be globular because it, it aids in metabolism. Insulin, which also aids in metabolism, it's also going to be globular, and it is a hormone that is made from beta cells that is involved in glucose regulation. Immunoglobin, which are antibodies, actually, they are surprisingly going to be globular because they play this metabolic role. Well, you know, they allow to have an immune response, so technically it's metabolism. Rhodopsin, uh, which this is pretty unknown. Most people don't know about this one. They, this is a globular protein, and it is linked to the pigment found in photoreceptors of cells. So I guess this is one of the last topics that we're going to see if you study human physiology. Uh, probably nervous system, yeah. Now, collagen, this is going to be a fibrous protein, so at a difference from all the other ones, this is going to be structural, and it is going to be found in muscles, tendons, and ligaments. So, it's what actually makes your skin sort of, like, strong. And finally, you're going to have spider's silk, which is also fibrous, and it is a protein produced by spiders in order for them to make their webs. So, as you can see, the principle is the same for all proteins here. It can be either metabolical or structural. Now let's discuss the naturation of proteins. So it is important to know that the reason why our groups stay together, it's normally because of the hydrogen bonds that each R group has, as well as some sulfur bridges, but you know, that's actually a minority. And whenever you raise the temperature, what's going to happen is that you know, molecules are going to start uh, moving really fast, and so hydrogen bonds are going to get broken, and therefore proteins will get denatured. So denatured means that the protein is going to lose its tertiary structure, and sometimes it can be reversible, other times, such as whenever you cook an egg, it is not reversible, and it won't go it will not go back again, but this is actually a pretty good explanation of why sometimes we get sick, you know, what happens whenever our temperature raises above 40 degrees, because some of our proteins, which are enzymes as well, they stop working properly, and so we are not able to make all the metabolic reactions that we need, as well as our RNA, which can also get broken down, and yeah, in general, protein denaturation for us is not good at all. So 
Another thing which can make proteins get denatured is pH. So all of them have different, uh, you know, natural pH conditions. So some of them are going to be able to handle very well uh, acidic conditions, such as the ones that we have in the, ex in the stomach. But others are not going to be able to handle pH of level 2, right? And they might need something more normal, such as the one we have, the, the enzymes, for example, that we have in our gut. You know, they're not able to always hold these hard pHs. But yeah, that depends a lot on where the protein is located most of the time. And, you know, as well as its configuration. But I think, guys, that that would be it for proteins. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Um, I think it was a good time. And yeah, have a great day. See you on the next one. Bye-bye.